Hi, this is Stephen Greif, and you're listening to the Sirens of Audio. G'day and welcome to this special edition of the Sirens of Audio. I'm Dwayne. And I'm Philip. G'day Dwayne and g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip. And uh, what brings us here to this special episode today? Well, I think many people, well everyone is aware that we lost a great actor at the end of last year in Stephen Greif. Um, we had the amazing privilege of spending a few hours in his company. Um, he was unbelievably generous with his time and we'd done lots of prep with him beforehand. And there was lots of material that we didn't include when we did the uh, episode that we put out more than a year ago now. And we just wanted to share some of the material because he had some amazing things to say, some really relevant, some not so relevant, but a lot of life experience. And we wanted to share that. Excellent. Not only that, but we've got some uh, tributes from some of the people he worked with at Big Finish. Uh, we've also uh, got uh, Jan Chapel and Sally Navette later on with a tribute uh, to their close friend of many decades. Uh, so we're happy to be able to share that with you too. And of course, Gary Russell, who first met him as a child, in one yes. of his first ever acting jobs when Gary was a child actor. And they, he and Stephen had a very strong friendship throughout the decades, that all, all through. So it's, Gary has some great things to say as well. So like you said, Philip, it was an interesting process putting that episode together with Stephen in the first place. He, he had some very specific uh, ways that he wanted to do things. Uh, we got the interview recorded the way he wanted it. Um, he gave us a few more instructions. And uh, then we just started chatting. And uh, there were some very interesting things in that chat, which uh, happy to share with you now. Yeah, it, it, it was he very much with that interview. He wanted a memoir of his life. And it was one of the things he said, said to us was he, you know, we wanted him to write a book because he had so many stories that he just so more stories than, than we could actually put all out. And he was telling and he just said, though, well, no, he didn't think anyone would want to read a book of his life. And so he wanted the episode he did with us to be his memoir. And so if you go back and listen to it, that's his memoir of his life uh, that he tries to do. But this is some of this other stuff that just shows his life was far more fun and evolved than just what he told us about in that special episode. What is it about your generation and your voice, Timbers? Because we've been reflecting recently some of the people we've been talking about. Your voice is just magnificent. It is so rich. It has so much character. And your generation have voices that are so distinct like that. Why are modern actors coming through and they all sound the same? Because I haven't done theatre. That's what it is. It's got uh, to be, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it, it, it is. It, it's a twofold answer. The first answer is I was lucky enough to be born with a good voice thanks to my mother and father. It was the best birthday present they ever gave me. Secondly, um, you, de you develop it or you should develop it at drama school um, technically, but in practice, as you rightly said, you go into the theatre and that stretches it, and it, you're able to control it more. You're able to get more nuance with it. Um, 
Uh, and that is a result of, of going into repertory theatre. Like at my first job was with the RSC. And in the talking roles that I had, I had to reach way, way back in a huge theatre in Stratford. And if you couldn't do that and articulate without appearing to articulate, um, you'd probably be sacked. Uh, now, there are microphones everywhere, which is not a bad thing, but it doesn't encourage people to use their voice and um, or, or extend it. And you're right. I mean, I hear it all the time on television and in the theatre that the ends of words are dropped, you know, uh, uh, um, syllables are, uh, are dropped, consonants are dropped. It's lazy work, and there is no director to call them on it. And I have a theory about it, which is that on television in particular, the director and the writer know what to expect from the actor. So if the line is to be or not to be, that is the question. And the actor says, be or not to be, is the question. They're thinking in their head that they've heard the line because they can see it in front of them and they've heard it before. So their mind is saying it's the, it's fine. But it's not fine because it's it's indistinguishable or indecipherable when it comes out on the box. The answer to that kind of thing, and of course it's asking too much now because budgets are infinitesimal to what they were, is to have somebody who doesn't know the script or the show and give him some cans and ask him after the take whether he could hear and understand everything that was being said. That would do it. And he would likely, in many cases, say no. And you can't cure that kind of thing in post-production, you know, which is where the audio engineers are so brilliant and they can make the sound better. I mean, a sound that is muffled, you can only make the, the muffle sharper through, <laughs> you know, the, That's right. through, the, through, through the, the technical uh, uh, assistance available to you through, um, through the gear. Um, that's, that's, that's that. And it, now it's become commonplace. It distresses me. Um, but there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is be as good as I can when I'm hopefully doing more TV and film work. Um, and I mean that. I haven't done a television or anything for over a year. Um, and on the microphone, of course, well... I've done it a lot for a very, very long time, and so I'm very comfortable with it, and I know how to modulate, and I won't, I won't quit a project unless I know that I've done the best I can with it. Um, and I do love the whole microphone, the world of the microphone and radio. You know, you can paint wonderful pictures through sound. But you're right. Um, I, I really can't tell you about about that craft with the modern actor because that poor actor hasn't had a chance to go out and practice. Mm -hmm. Great Britain used to have a very big tradition of theatre and regional theatre, which you were part of. There's still some stuff happening. I mean, last time I was over there, I went to Bromley to watch Louise Jamison in a show. Um, yep. So there's still a bit of regional theatre that's happening, but it's obviously decreasing an awful lot. Is audio work decreasing a lot as well? Is, is there just less opportunities for actors now? Is it all just going to soap operas and that's it for actors? No, I don't think audio work, I think the opposite. I think audio work has increased enormously. I mean, look at the big finish output. It's fantastic audio output. But are they unique um, as a company in, in terms of what's happening? Or are they still, I mean, the BBC no. uses so much audio. Uh, yeah, they, well, well, the BBC, um, 
Are they really? I mean, I used to do a lot of work with BBC up in Bath when they had their own studio, but I don't recall doing any BBC audio work for ever. Mm. I mean, most of my work is Big Finish or um, one of the book companies, the publishing companies, you know, Penguin or someone. Um, maybe I haven't understood your question well, correctly. Well, I'm, I'm it, it seems to me, Big Finish seems to be unusual in terms of a big audio company. The BBC yep. were known for all their audio plays, audio dramas, which I, they don't seem to be doing to the same extent that they used to in terms of employing large numbers of voice actors. I'm just wondering, is, is, are we actually losing the active, that they are not only losing region, but voice actors too? No, I think I've now understood what you mean. You're talking about radio as well, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, sorry, yes. And Yeah, and that, that in, is entirely different. Yeah, I am doing very much less radio work than I used to do because they have swept out many of the producers in radio. There used to be loads of them. Now there are only very few. They all now work in the same group area at Broadcasting House. And... They have, they have a rep company, which they used to do, rather a big rep company. They cut that down and got outsiders like me in to do certain things. But now they've got that rep company again with, I think, a nucleus of, I'm guessing, but maybe eight to ten people, you know? Six males, four females, or six females, four males, whatever. And then invite people in um, as and when to do stuff. But the, if you look at the Radio Times and look at the cast lists of the afternoon play, which is the one remaining stable source of drama, you'll see they're very small, you know? And the Radio 3 dramas are mostly repeats, and the new stuff is very small, very small cast. So it's all budget cutting. And yes, I'm afraid, and the BBC have also farmed out much of their stuff. This has been going on for years, of course, to independent um, production companies you know, who produce plays and stuff for them. Um, but it has reduced. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I miss it. Uh, I love the radio. and love the. I've done a radio, actually. I did a radio last year um, for one of my favorite producers, uh, for whom I did a lot of work. Um, but I did it at home. And uh, he was at home. And there were two or three actors at Broadcasting House because they didn't have the equipment at home to be able to self-record. They probably have now, but not then. So here I am, talking as I am to you, Dwayne and Philip, and I'm hearing the other character in my earphone from 30 miles away or 1,000 miles away, and we're doing it like that. It's bloodless, you know. Um, there's, no, there's no human contact, which is the fun of it. So um, it is what it is, and... Um, you better better some than nothing. I'm doing a show at the moment uh, with Sean Phillips, Dame Sean Phillips. Um, we've done it before at Crazy Cox, Zadell's Brasserie in Piccadilly, and we're doing it again there um, in September. But we did a show last Sunday at the Good Enough University College in Russell Square. And Sean was telling me, because I wanted to come and see her show. She's at the National Theatre at the moment for the next 10 days doing Under Milk Wood, you know, Dylan Thomas's great mm. oeuvre. And I've been at the National over the years many times and had wonderful times both on the South Bank and at the Old Vic, but at the South Bank particularly. Um, and 
The bookshop is shut. All the cafes and eateries, front of house, are shut. The canteen in the theatre itself is shut. And you can't go back and see people afterwards. So the cast, who are not really allowed to mix with each other apart from on stage, arrive at the theatre, go to their dressing rooms, go on stage, and at the end of the show, go home. Isn't that sad? Yeah. I mean, it takes all the joy out of it. And I think to myself, do I really want to do that now? I don't think I do. Unless the play that was offered and the part that was offered to me was so delicious that I couldn't resist it, in which case I'd want to be doing it anyway. And for a, a limited house, of course, that stops next Monday, doesn't it? Uh, when everything's opened up again. Um, but that fr fraternity, the fr the fraternal atmosphere between actors is the fun of it, really, for me. It's half the job, you know, meeting people, having a cup of tea, a piece of toast, and egg on toast before the show, all that sort of stuff. It's all part of the culture of the job. And without that, it becomes very, all the flesh is taken from the bone. But she's a grand gal, and she loves working, and she's a wonderful actress, and so she just takes it in her stride. And I guess at the end of the day, what else can you do? You mm -hmm. know? She's been doing a lot with Big Finish too, recently. Has she? Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Great. What has she been doing? Can you tell me? Uh, I, what's the character she's been playing? Has it been a recurring character, or has she been playing different ones, Philip? Ah, like... uh, yeah, just going to uh, give me a moment. She's, uh, she doesn't talk about... Uh, I mean, I th she does do some recording at home, but I think now she prefers to record from the studio. But I didn't know she did, did stuff for Big Finish. There's no reason why I should know. We can't talk about everything. Cut out of the moment. Don't worry, not to worry. No. Um, just in terms of just Travis, is, is he better Richard III? No. No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. He's, he's not. He's very much simpler than all that. He's a very simple bloke. <laughs> well, what made you think he was? Uh, just in terms of a tragic, troubled figure who longs for more but never has success. No, I think all he longs for is to kill Blake. That's all he he dreams about. I think he's a very simple, simple fellow, who who whose personality suited being in the army. And there are many people like that, you know, very blinkered lives. It's very narrow. Life is very simple for them. Forward, obey orders, and do it to the best of your ability. I don't think there's much more to him than that. I don't think he really has a sex life. I mean. <laughs> It could be fun. That's his biggest I mean, problem. It could be fun. It could be fun to uh, to write some of that in, and I think it's been suggested in one or two of the dramas that I've done. I think I tried to suggest a hint of that, uh, just to give it a bit more colour, um, or some colour. But I don't think he's very complicated at all. Um, I think he just is what he is, you know, uh, dedicated. And um, yeah, I've just found what Sean has been has done recently oh, she yeah. did a she did a tom baker fourth doctor box set uh that was released <laughs> earlier this year uh, she was playing the villain in that um, oh great what else is she she's did she did a benny summerfield with lisa bauman and and david oh, warner great uh 
Oh, yeah, yeah. To chip. She's done a couple of Tom Bakers. Yeah, a few few different things for Big Finish. Cross I'm glad to hear as well. So she's yeah, she's gone across the ranges a little. Well, she's got a wonderful voice, as you know. I mean, she she incidentally might be interested. She's recording as we speak the talking book version of her written autobiographies that she did. Both of them are wonderful reads. She's a terrific writer. And hearing her, I can't wait to get them. Hearing her speaking her own lines, you know, about her life, first of all in Wales and in theatre when she was young, and then being married to O'Toole for 20 years and that extraordinary marriage, you know, and her career as an actress in all the media. She's quite a gal, and uh, she does have a wonderful voice. I mean, I did this show with Fenella Fielding, you know, the show that Sean and I are doing, and for nobody had a voice like Fenella Fielding. You know, it was very, very dark and very silky, darling, and and quite unlike anybody you've ever heard, apart from the actress Joan Greenwood. But actually, Fenella was much better. And Sean is quite different to Fenella, but she has a wide range in her voice, which comes from having worked for 75 years. That's what happens when you work for 75 years or 60, 50, 40, 30 years. You develop if you want to develop, you know, which she did. And I think a lot of us just want to develop in the best way we can. We're always learning. Um, anyway, there we are. Those two books are called Private Places and Secrets, something or others. And they deal with her, her early life before she met O'Toole. And then her life from O'Toole onwards, only up to 2000, the year 2000. So I think I think there's another book there, you know, but whether she's writing it or not, I don't know. I hope she is, because she's a very good writer. I was actually thinking that when you were speaking with us earlier, have you have you written a autobiography at all? Memoir? Nah. Now, let me tell you, this is, this, this is the closest that I've ever come or probably ever will come to talking about me. I haven't been asked, and there's no reason for me. But when I had this opportunity, I thought, well, I'm never going to write a biography, because why would I? Who'd be interested? But um, I thought I would address these questions honestly and in the best way I could, which is why I've prepared it. And hopefully it doesn't sound that way, you know, when we put it all together. The secret, of course, is to make it sound like you're making it up on the spot. Mm. You know. Yeah. Well, can I say, it's absolutely fascinating life you've had and the contact with people you've met. And I could have Hope it's not for, over yet. <laughs> but I could have talked for hours more about some of the things. I mean, you know, your time with Laurence Olivier just sounds astounding. Well, you know, it was. And um, um, we, we we remained friends long after I left uh, the Old Vic and he left the Old Vic. I. I spent a weekend at his invitation at his home with Joan Plowright and my fiance, and uh, he's written me lovely letters, as he'd done many actors, and he was a joy in my life. Um, and to get to work with your heroes, the, the people particularly who've influenced you and who, as a result of them, you did what they did, became an actor. You've got to be very lucky to do that. And uh, it did have a major influence on me. and. I still think of him from time to time. I'm in touch with his widow, the most wonderful actress and woman, Joan Plowright, who's quite elderly now and can't see, but um, I've been in touch with her over a number of things over the years. And it is the highlight 
the highlight of my career. And I think you'll you, most people will tell you that who've been at the Old Vic with him, that nothing comes close to it. It's another age, another era. Um, and he was very, very special. And I'm privileged. I was privileged to know him. And he liked me. Uh, you know, I, I turned him down again at the end. Of, I'd been there for two years. He asked me to stay and I said no. Um, but we still remained very, very friendly. And he still was, would write me letters when he came to see shows that I'd done. You know, and that kind of thing does keep you going. But it's a changed world, my masters, and all that world is gone. And so one has to just soldier on. And I think people like Sean Phillips and Brian Blessed are good examples of that, you know. Um, whatever, however changes are and how much they go against your personal grain, onwards, you know. So there we are. What's the store for you? What are you looking forward to? Do you have plans and dreams still? Well, I want to do some more TV and, and, and theatre. Uh, uh, yeah, I do want to do more work. I will never retire. But it's it's in a pretty uh, pretty fragile state for people of my generation. Um, and I just have to be patient and, and carry on. Um, microphone work is still very good to me, and I'm very grateful for it. Uh, I play a lot of golf, which I adore. And... Um, Slowly, slowly, maybe we'll get back to going out and going to theatre, cinema, restaurants, whatever, um, and seeing mates. Yeah, no, I've been very lucky indeed. Very, very lucky. Well, I hope you enjoyed those uh, extra bit of extracts and information that you heard from Stephen. There's more that we're not going to share. Some, some are not quite appropriate to share um, because he was such a funny man and had such great stories to tell. But I hope you've enjoyed those extra bits um, that he that he shared with us and we're going to now um, just listen to some of his friends uh, and a few tributes of, of people who had worked closely with him had known him for years and hear some of the things that they have to say so we're going to have from, hear from peter angelegis from gary russell from jan chapel and sally Navette. i first met stephen at a blake seven convention and it was in uh, oxford it was uh, quite a, a modest uh, setup in a hotel just on the outskirts, and uh, he wasn't due to be there. It, he was um, he just turned up because he'd heard that his friends were uh, at the convention because uh, Michael Keating and um, um, Gareth Thomas were there. Uh, so he just decided he was going to turn up. Of course, you know, much to the, the delight of everyone who was uh, who was there, was made to feel very welcome. Um, I can't remember whether he was working in the area or whether he travelled in from where he lived uh, down south or whatever, but it was a lovely surprise. And he was uh, he was very charming company, of course. I first started working with Stephen uh, when we were doing the Worlds of Blake Seven uh, stories. I just missed out a chance to work with him and and meet him in person on the Sarah Jane stories that uh, Big Finish did, because I wrote one of those and uh, he was in some of the other episodes. So the first time I got to work with him at Big Finish was... Uh, the Clone Masters, um, because um, David Richardson had set these up and uh, Tim Foley had written them. And I had this cunning idea that uh, we should involve both Travises in one story. It's sort of a very fanish thing to do. And so that was the first opportunity I had to have him and Brian Croucher work in the same episode. And that was the very first time I, I'd worked with him. So uh, that was at, at the time when... Uh, the pandemic was in full swing, so everything was being recorded remotely. 
So people were dialing in from their, uh, their various home studios. So I didn't get to meet him in person, but I got to talk to him uh, over the phone line during the recording of that episode. And I knew then that uh, he was uh, great fun to work with, which is always important when you're doing these audios. It's one thing to have people who you know you want to have in the episode because of their character, but it's really a a delight to know that someone is, is is wonderful to work with as well, not just uh, with you or with the script, but also with the the other actors in the studio, or in that case, in the virtual studio. So I was delighted to have a chance to uh, involve him in a, in a subsequent uh, story as well. So uh, having had great success with having him face off with the other Travis, I thought what great fun it was for the second box set that we were commissioning to have him... Um, uh, face off against uh, Baben. So we uh, uh, commissioned a story that uh, featured him and Colin Baker together. And, and that worked out tremendously, tremendously well uh, as well. The notion was to get him involved in those stories was to give him a life beyond the, uh, the Star One episode. Uh, not just because um, that was when uh, the the Travis character left the series, but also because, of course, Stephen was only in the in the first series of Blake Seven. So uh, the conceit was that he was a clone, um, justified by the stories in the Clone Master set. So we were able to bring him back at uh, later points as well. So having established that, it was great fun to have him appear in our most recent box set, which was um, after the war. So it was a chance to have him appear. Um, mysteriously meeting up with with Jenna and with Arlen at a point when the original Travis couldn't possibly have done that, and of course the the idea is that he's the uh, he's the clone Travis, and I quite like the idea of involving him in that because uh, Stephen quite enjoyed the opportunity to do a different sort of spin on the Travis character, and uh, if I wasn't if I'm honest with you, he was also looking forward to doing some some uh, some more in the future. The last thing that Stephen recorded for us was uh, the reading of Zero Point. Uh, the novel by uh, Mark B. Oliver, and uh, that was in August of last year. And all of that came out first uh, before um, after the war. Uh, that was actually the last thing he recorded for us. So everything we've, we've, we've got him to do for us uh, is, is out there in the world now. Oh, Stephen was great fun and very supportive of the other actors uh, that he was working with. All of the people who worked with him would tend to say uh, two things. One was... Um, how wonderful it was to work with him on audio because he has such a such a, a striking voice, uh, but also how enjoyable it was um, to work with him either in the studio or uh, or virtually down the line. Um, one of the things I really valued about Stephen was that he prepared thoroughly for his his stories. Um, some actors are, are happier just to come in and do a sort of cold reading based on the script in front of them. Stephen was much more meticulous than that. He used to uh, read the scripts. Um, so you think about the the uh, novels, for example, they are fifty to sixty thousand words uh, each, um, and we would record them over two days. And Stephen would uh, read them in advance and make notes about pronunciations and uh, character voices. Um, make sure that any of the, um, the the page turns or the line turns uh, weren't going to be awkward during the the, the reading, and so on. So he was he was meticulous about that. Um, when I spoke to his uh, his twin sons um, after he died, um, something that they said about his um, his approach to golf um, reminded me of that. They said that one of the things they found as they were sorting out his things was lots of notes around his house 
about um, how he should be holding the clubs and um, how he should be standing while taking a swing and so on. And I thought that was kind of characteristic of, of Stephen's um, thorough preparation, in that case, for, for golf, because he was at one point the president of his, uh, his, his um, local uh, golf club. I first met Stephen Greif um, in an old house called Rhinefield House, uh, which is in the New Forest in the UK, in Hampshire. And we were filming an episode of The Famous Five. And it was an episode that I've always been very fond of because I had a lot to do in it. It was quite nice. It was like, oh, I get lots of solo stuff in this story. Um, and Stephen was playing the villain of the story. And... <laughs> Um, in a completely bizarre move, they decided, the costume people decided that he really would play it like a traditional villain. So there's me and uh, an actor called Leon Eagles, who's playing the good guy that, that Stephen Greif has kidnapped and I've come to rescue. Um, and Stephen plays the villain with a very strange Lancashire accent which is not Stephen's natural accent in any way, shape or form, that he's so exaggerated and so over the top and so amazingly funny. Uh, so he sounds like he's come out of Coronation Street, but I say the costume department have dressed him in this kind of suit, complete with a big trilby hat. So he looks like a gangster from the 1930s. And my very first meeting with Stephen, because uh, we didn't rehearse here, it was all shoot rehearse shoot rehearse shoot um so my first meeting with him was was the first scene that we had with him where he's standing on a flight of stairs pointing a gun at me i think a couple of the other kids were there as well at that point and i just remember unprofessionally completely unprofessionally we did a, a, a rehearsal and he just spoke his first line with this this broad coronation street style accent and i laughed and i really loved This isn't one of Pottershaw's tricks. Hey, can you walk? Yes, 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 I can walk. Don't worry, we soon have you out. Do you think so? Kids, do you think I'm going to let three brats and a dog ruin years of planning, do you? Hey? You hold that dog and I'll shoot him. Shh, be quiet. You kids will be sorry for this, I promise you. I was one of these very bad actors uh, who, once I start laughing, I can't stop. And and I started giggling. And yeah, there were the other kids were there because they started giggling. And then Stephen started giggling. And I, I just I just remember looking at him and I didn't say anything. I just looked at him because I'd spoken to him previously and therefore knew what he really sounded like. And just wasn't expecting this, this sort of mad Coronation Street accent. And there was a character many, many years ago in Coronation Street called Minnie Caldwell, who was a little old lady who famously was one of the first characters in Coronation Street to die. And uh, he just looked straight at me and said, I'm, I'm doing my best Minnie Caldwell. And I found that funny. Uh, I didn't really understand who Minnie Caldwell was. So he then had to explain that to me. I think he explained that to me a couple of hours later. But from that moment on, he then called me, he always called me Minnie. So whenever I'd see him, he'd always go, hello, Minnie, how's Minnie? All right, Minnie. 
um because you know he's using his proper london voice at that point and and so we we spent you know four or five days doing this episode of famous five um and just laughing the whole time because every time he opened his mouth to say a line i just caught i just giggled and then he would giggle and 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 we were both very very naughty gigglers and get getting told off an awful lot by the director for giggling and we just became friends in that short space that week and then about two or three years later i was at i was working at the national theater and we the woman i was working at the national uh it was very social everyone went around to everyone else's houses and we all had parties in that way that you did in the 80s uh, and you're a bunch of actors and everyone just goes to everyone's house and has tea parties and by tea, I don't mean tea at all. I mean an awful lot of alcohol, except for me, who did drink tea. And at one of these parties, Stephen Greif was there. He was a friend of one of the actors. And I was like, oh, my God, you won't remember me. And he just turned around to me and went, Minnie! And as a result, every time I have seen Stephen from that point onwards, he always referred to me as Minnie. And I saw him many, many times. And we, we stayed in touch because he just made me laugh. Um and I remember once there was a they were launching, I think it was the Blake Seven VHSs, and they were launching them at Stringfellows, this big nightclub in London. And I was involved with this because it was uh, being done by BBC Enterprises, who didn't know the first thing about um, Blake Seven. And I was editing Doctor Who magazine at the time. And they said to me, oh, we don't know how to get in touch with any of the actors and get them along. And I said, well, I don't really. Um, and I put them in touch, I think, with Diane G's, who was running Horizon at that point. Um, but I said, the only person I can literally phone up is, is Stephen Greif, who played the first Travis. They're like, oh, ask, please do. And, and, you know, ask him to get in touch with us. We'd love him to come along. And I phoned Stephen and he didn't want to do it. He just, no, no, darling, I don't, I don't, oh, no, love, no, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. No, I don't want to do Blake Sevens. No, no, you don't, they don't need me. They want Gareth and, and Paul. And so I went back to the BBC and said, no, Stephen doesn't want to do it. And they were like, oh, we really want Stephen to do it. And I thought, oh, you haven't got very many people, have you? Um, so I went back to Stephen and I said, look, I'm going to be there. Uh, I'm kind of hosting the launch, if you like, because I'm the only person the BBC know who knows anything about Blake Seven. I'm not actually doing anything official, but they want me to be there to sort of introduce all of you to journalists and everything. I said, you know, come along, let, let's let's just have some fun. So he agreed to go. Um, as it turned out, I think the BBC got, I mean, I know Gareth was there and I don't think Paul was there, but Gareth was there and Sally was there and David Jackson was there and Michael Keating was there and Pete Tudnam was there. And I think probably, was anyone else there? Brian Croucher wasn't there. Oh, uh, no, Jacqueline wasn't there. Um, so they got a few of them there. And we just had, and he and I just had a good laugh and we went out that night, just the two of us. And we just, you know, went out and put the world to rights and we just stayed friends. We've stayed friends all these years. So now I met him in 78 and the last time I spoke to him would have been during lockdown when we recorded uh, the Blake Seven I wrote for him. I wrote this two-hander, well, it's effectively a two-hander. Um, and uh, I didn't get to direct it. John Ainsworth directed it, but... It was one of those things where everything was done down the line because of COVID. So I was able to effectively, a bit like this, 
I could jump in and and hear. I couldn't see everyone, but I could hear everybody, and we could all talk to each other. And I came on, and I think probably about half an hour into the recording, I think John very foolishly said something like, "Oh, and the writers." chipped in by the way he's listening to all of this at which point Stephen just came completely out of character well, Gary, oh, and then we just and we had about a half hour chat and John kept saying can we can we record can we get back to doing the play oh yes darling yes love yes love in a minute yeah, yeah we just got to catch up and then we fin- they finished the recording and we actually did a little interview John recorded a little interview with me and Stephen um and a couple of the other cast just talking about it and that was the last time I spoke to him um and he was just a lovely man. And I, I just, he's one of those few people um, I'm outside of the Doctor Who world. He's one of the few people who genuinely, I think I would have said, you know, we were friends. We always just hit it off and clicked. And 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 I was always Minnie, even I think when we were doing that Blake Seven play, a couple of times he referred to me as Minnie, much to the confusion of everybody else on this Blake Seven play. Um and he was great and he was fantastic and he will be enormously missed. I met Stephen when he was 19 because um, we both went to RADA and I was two terms ahead of him because it was a termly intake at RADA. So that's where I first cast my eyes on um, the great Stephen Greif, bless him, when we were both at RADA in Gower Street. And if anybody doesn't know, RADA is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, of which we were very proud of being able to get ourselves into. And then I saw more of him, although he was in another class, I saw more of him because I don't remember the full history, but my flatmate at the time in a flat called Holland Park, where I was in in my final, final, we were there in my final year, we had a flat prior to that. I had a, I was at home and then I had a room. I was sharing with a girl, an actress called Jane Bond, who subsequently left the business and became a Hare Krishna girl, whatever her new name became. Anyway, that's what happened to her. But before that, she went out with Stephen. Stephen. And so I remember him clearly in the basement of the Holland Park um, flat where the bath was in the kitchen with a top on it, which we had to remove, which was the uh, work surface in the kitchen. And the floor was rotting. And one day, one of us went through the floor and the mould came up. But that that was just a bit of history. I mean, that's what it was like back in 1964, if you were renting a flat. That's where I first met Stephen. No, I mean, I, I basically must have met him on set. And as I was running terrified at the time I have no idea who I met and who I didn't you know I was I was in my first telly virtually and he must have come on set but you know I think for the purposes of this interview a lot of what I'm going to say about him is is really what I have 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 gleaned and the relationship we had in the last five to ten years because I've got to know him so much better since Blake Seven through working on Big Finish and doing all the wonderful audios we do and he helped me build my studio but um, I really didn't know him and I was a little bit in awe of him he was so sort of glamorous and much older than well not much but a few years at that age means mean is a hell of a lot and you know he was decked out in leather and an eye patch and I was completely terrified of him but he <laughs> but had a natural uh, gravitas didn't he 
he had an actual yes, he gravitas. Did. He was intimidating. He was intimidating. And he's also, as he's always been, slightly sort of private. And I'm, I, I, so I never know how to deal with people like that. I sort of carry on talking too much or whatever. But he, he was very nice. I loved working with him, but I, I can't. And of course, I never virtually worked with him. That's the other thing, because we hardly ever met except when we were shooting at each other. That's where it all started. Because he was in series one, wasn't he? He was. Actually, I was, yeah. was, was going to ask you because your the first main location work you did was with Stephen. So on Jewel. Oh yeah. So oh two, yes. So you you both there was a major location show. I think you were away for a few days. Uh, that were, do you, sure. Do you remember any of? Well, that? I remember. I remember all the stuff in the woods, and you know, um, I think I spent a lot of time tied to a tree or up a tree with Gareth with bats hanging over me. Um, and they, he and uh, Carol Royal, who was the android, were sort of trying to get to me. I don't remember anything about him outside of set. I expect he had a very private place to stay. I've no idea where I stayed. I mean, God, how can you remember where you stayed in 1978? But I do remember that it was incredibly cold. And I think I was stuck up that tree most of the night. And it wasn't, it was Dougie Canfield, wasn't it, who directed it, who was absolutely lovely. He was probably one of my favourite directors. Um, and there was a lot of action, which, again, I loved. And, you know, there was Stephen. But it was ma mainly Carol chasing me and injecting me in the neck. And, you know, so he was there. But, again, there wasn't an awful lot of one-to-one -one with him and I. But I do remember it being a very enjoyable episode to do, apart from the freezing cold and being up a tree all night. <laughs> I just remember the studio, the Acton rehearsal studio. I just re I can remember exactly where he, on his first day rehearsing, I think, I can remember where in the Acton rehearsal room, he and Jackie were working and remember that's when I came in because I obviously I wasn't on the filming came in to rehearse and I can remember vividly seeing him and, and Jackie in that room that first day that first uh, episode he did of course they would have had a lot of time together wouldn't they because being you know yeah queen much federation more much more than us because we were our team and they were always chasing us so they had much more of a time team. together we did yeah that absolutely. often happens when you're filming or, or or in studio you can work with someone and literally never meet them or you know literally meet them on passant i must have seen him over the years you know in, in different scenarios you know odd meetings at parties and things but i hadn't ever worked with him so this was the first time that um we'd been in the same not necessarily worked together that much because i can't remember actually working much with him in that in the series but actually um being in the same project. <laughs> After having left this, the series behind us, then finding it had this afterlife as it rattled on, I think it was the death rattle, but it, it awoke and again, you know, there was another, um, at the beginning, of course, we were doing international um, um, conventions and then more alongside local ones, meaning in the UK and of course they were always the fun time weren't they Sal we always loved and looking forward oh we'll be able to see our our mates again so that was it was usually bus, you it? me and Stephen wasn't it I mean in England he never came to Chicago did he I don't remember him in Chicago I, I don't remember him no I don't remember no. that either but, I think he's probably but, um, busy 
but it sort of seemed to evolve that in the last more recently more recently it's just you me and him we we got a nice little team together really and uh he was always ringing up wasn't he a few weeks before saying now are you sure you're doing it and you sure jan's doing it and are we all going to be doing it together because i really want you there and it was it was very sweet he was very concerned i was always the vague one i never knew when things were happening and, and when when and so he'd be he'd be he'd like to organize me and say right okay come on you've got to be there and you must phone so and so and and in fact jan's now taking over that role and it was more fun and he th- he thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed them didn't he i mean he was very he connected did. to the conventions was lovely to the fans very generous very kind like we all try to be but it's lovely watching someone being particularly sensitive to 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 the fans uh, and he was great wasn't he absolutely and i remember that last one we did last summer i mean he made a point of writing to each person who'd organized it you remember we got those goodie bags and everything and he was being very, he was just extremely uh grateful thoughtful and uh yeah and i think actually quite a few of them came to the funeral um yeah you were there weren't you but two of them or three of them the, who organized last summer's one came to the funeral he never he never took anything for granted uh. he was i mean i said a little bit at the funeral and i i think he was uh, as i say when i first met him he was a bit of a sort of distant scary figure um he was always you know tall good looking handsome and wore that amazing outfit as travis which obviously made him even more formidable and and sexy actually i think probably lots of fans must have absolutely fallen for him um he was he was actually belied his image belied the person i thought i mean i you might disagree jan but there was something incredibly private about him and more anxious than i would have ever imagined um very um he was very detailed everything he did was meticulous and organized and and uh i mean i've recently been uh talking a lot to a uh, a woman who you could say is possibly his has been has been very close to him over the last 2 years and and i think his meticulous behavior and trying to you know dot all the no dot all the i's and t's is that the expression i can't think what it is but he 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 would organize things make sure he wouldn't get involved until he knew it was absolutely perfectly set up um he was fantastic to me in the last few years because he suggested to me that i started this studio let me just show it this thing here which he helped me build because he he's got uh, a little hut like this so he sent me photos of his hut he told me what uh, microphones to get what uh, interface to get everything and then he bought me bits of foam and cut them up meticulously you know he was he was co- absolutely concerned that i i built the right studio with the right equipment so we could do all these um big finish episodes and and indeed you know he was very keen for me to develop my voice over career uh, during covid so i could honestly say his generosity his kindness his his you know approach and detail has set me up as more of a voice over artist than i was before which is not saying a lot because <laughs> i haven't done a lot in the last few year but i will be working on it in the next year or two <laughs> 
because I love doing it and it's a very nice thing to work from home. You just, you know, I could I could be sitting here, which I am not, but I could be sitting here in my pajamas. Um, and it's a, it's a great delight to have that as an option in your life at this stage. <laughs> but all of well, this. Stand up. Let's um, just check. Sal. Yep. Stand yep, up. That's my pajama to top. <laughs> but um, no, you know, he, he's he was a private man. And what I found so interesting was that when I sadly, I didn't listen to it until after he died. Your Sirens of Audio interview was so revealing to me about him as a personality and and the and the rather difficult and tragic events that happened to him as a child with his father's business, um, you know, folding because of the being being completely, you know, kiboshed by these these dreadful people who took all his money. Uh, I think that must have had a massive impact on a 10-year-old boy. I think he was about 10. And I'm sure that would have made him... Some of his sons actually said that, didn't they? They At the um, memorial, they said that something to the effect that it informed the way he operated, who he was, that that major thing. I mean, such a shock. Out of their lovely house, everything completely downgraded from from being very comfortable, quite well wealthy from what it sounds like, beautiful house in Hertfordshire to kind of a flat in Stamford Hill. And um, to going to the, um, you know, the pub, um, not the public school, but regular school, not no longer private education. It was a big, big shock to them all. I mean, he's obviously a very bright man, but I think emotionally he felt uh, that come down. And particularly his mother was, I think, uh, very concerned with her, you know, her, her position in society and was a, quite an elegant, glamorous woman. And I think it really took a massive hit on his mother. And I think that's probably affected him very deeply as a little boy I felt so much compassion for him I thought if only I'd known this I'd have loved to have talked to him about it but again he it's not the sort of thing a lot of people would splurge that out on your first meeting you know but what no I've known him for years he never mentioned it he I know knew so little about his life you know he said he liked you know he saw his boys occasionally didn't really know much about his previous marriage but what I have found out from his present friend who's a good friend of mine is is what a lovely decent man he's been and and uh but anxious anxious about you know his work and his status and how things are going and it's very difficult to be an older actor as a man who's had that sort of stature at the national and to as we all find work gets less and less as you get older I think I don't know if I'm Can generalizing. I add something to that, yes, yeah. Could I say yeah. something to follow that up? There was one day, again, when we were at a convention, which is where one used to meet and over breakfast and have quite intimate chats and things. One day, I remember it so clearly, just recently, this she went, oh, Jan, where did it all go wrong? And... Because both of us, because of which he was very proud, I must say, both of us won the top RADA award for our terms. I did and he did. So our names are there on a big board at RADA underneath Sean Phillips, Ian Holm, Glenda Jackson. You know, you name them. There's Janet Chapel, which was my name. Quite rightly. Even a couple of years later. And um, he said, where did it all go wrong? 
And of course, because he was like all old actors, they get into trouble. They're not happy. They want to go on working. And I still believe that with the response to his passing, I hate that passing, response no. the response to his dying death, um yeah. th there was such a a, a wonderful um you know response and celebrating of it from here to los angeles to new york to you know the newspapers all recognizing how much quality work he did from the classic work to the television series to blake seven citizen smith and what a uh um versatile actor he was and i really believe sal do you because he did have a very he, he had a vulnerability i think he oh, yes. would have been quite surprised i really think i don't I think, think he would have been delighted and quite surprised and i i have to put in a good word for caroline here who is absolutely determined to get everything out to the world because she she felt that he deserved the recognition and uh, Caroline being his friend, and well and, and she was, and she's still trying to get you know interviews out, and wants to do another service and everything. Because I mean, the whole thing's been such a shock. To be honest, he did a voiceover on the Monday morning, and it was on the Tuesday that he collapsed. So you know, he was even though he was obviously feeling completely dreadful, his professionalism took over and he he did his voiceover and then the next day i mean shocking 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 but uh the only one thought anything you can say is at least he didn't suffer for too long with these dreadful diseases that's about the only positive you can say but we're all going to miss him horribly sorry well, the, when he had oh. the memorial at the, at the golf club um he, we were i mean there were there was a small it was a small cremation service. It wasn't a funeral per se, mm -hmm. but the two lovely boys that we've got pictures of them as little boys with their daddy. Can I just show you just for niceness? With the two boys were so warm and lovely. Weren't they lovely? As soon as they saw us, they, they, they behaved as though they knew us, didn't they, Sal? Yeah. Just grabbed yeah. us, just went, oh, looked in our eyes and went, whoa, how lovely to see you. And we'd never met them before. Um, and, um, they they made um, a, a couple of re readings of things that they'd chosen, and they'd obviously chosen the music and their families. They've got young families, but one family is either in New York or Los Angeles, the other up in Edinburgh. So they were really were just it seemed like just the two two boys, and um, uh, they said lovely um, accolades as uh, as a father. I mean, they they was he's obviously deeply loved, and. Um, you know, where did it all go wrong? Well, it didn't go wrong, really. It but, didn't I mean, go wrong. Whatever stage actors get at, whether it's suddenly their first movie in Hollywood, they want the first, second and the third or the fifth, whether they've got their first series, you can always go better. So even very successful actors still want more. That's my experience of listening around the place. Whatever they've got, it's not quite enough. You have to have the next step. I think it's it's particularly true of some guys, more than, more than women tend to sort of... I, agree. I might. I think women, you know, we're more into multitasking. They're, okay, well, I'll do my garden or I'll go and do this or I'll volunteer yeah, for that. Yeah. Whereas I think blokes, your whole sort of uh, being depends on you getting that next big job or being in that. And I think for most men, I'm noticing at this age, they're finding the uh, the gradual descent into 
into old age much more difficult than most of my girlfriends because they have had glory times, but nothing stays the same. Everything moves on, everything changes, and you have to take the good with the bad. And But what he, just to go back to where I think he really was at in the last days of his life was his love of doing voiceovers, and his voice was phenomenal. He had this beautiful voice, and when I was had got my studio sorted out, I did some poems, and he offered to do one for me. I remember, Sal, what I was going to say that on, on top of everything that you'd said about how how you know what a beautiful, lovely man he was. When we, after the cremation, we went to the golf club, his favourite, best home, his second home, he would call it, the Richmond Golf Club, oh, uh, where there is a. Uh, a club for actors and since the 90s there's 1930s there's been a club for just actors and there's a dedicated room there with a great big long oak table and big wooden boards up to celebrate the wins the prizes people had won the num- names of the presidents of the stage golf club I'm not sure exactly golf club within the the Richmond Golf Club. And when we arrived for the memorial at Golf Club, the room we I thought we were going into a small room, like this smaller room where the, the stage golf club is. No, it was the most beautiful because the whole place is in a beautiful old house, isn't it? Fantastic mansion yeah, of a place. Yeah. And the, the room was full of men over a certain age, wasn't it? Absolutely yeah. packed with people. golfers. A lot of golfy actory men as well. Yes. And um they made contributions of ways in which Stephen had gone out of his way, out of generosity to make, solve problems, sort things for them. And they also announced, which is very touching, because I was very lucky enough the other summer to be taken round to lunch and served a special wine afterwards and be shown all around this beautiful golf club, shown the the cup that he had won for his golf because he was a very good golfer and he also had been a president. So his name was twice on the board for um, winning things and once on the board as president. Uh, one of the things that was found, and I can't remember whether it was found in his house or in his pocket, but were hundreds of little bits of paper with little bits of golfing technique on them, you know, your swing. And I just thought that was so Stephen, you know, the two things yes. that were passion were acting and golf and he wanted to be a perfectionist in both areas and so you know there were loads and loads of little bits all around the flat and the house that all to do with you know how to improve your swing <laughs> and uh, he was so a, perfectionist. a perfectionist absolutely and a gentleman a, those are the two words and, that yeah absolutely they also announced that this memorial service that that the um he used to look after and I'm not quite sure what it entailed but he did look after this lovely green area at the back which of course was a, a putting lawn and they they were I mean there's nowhere else actually in the in the golf club as I recall that had the name of a person but they were going to call the putting putting lawn the Stephen Greif putting lawn so everybody was very thrilled and clapped about that so that's how much he meant to the golf club yeah. Now you got a lot of uh, having a lot of those old boys being so warm about him says a lot to my mind. Yeah. You know, yeah. instead of being competitive, they just said, yeah, he's a, he was a gentleman and a perfectionist and a lovely, thoughtful man. So I think that paints a pretty good picture of him, doesn't it? I 
I think we've done it, don't you? <laughs> I think we've done it. I think we've said everything. Well, I, I, I have. I would like to say that I then went with Caroline last week because she just wanted to go have someone to go with her to um, spread his ashes in um, Mortlake Cemetery. And that was one of the most moving things I've ever done in my life. It was extraordinary. The most delightful woman had welcomed us. And she said, I've got Stephen here. And she sort of had, it, had a little bag. <laughs> and she said, now, why don't you both go out into the, into the gardens and see where you feel is the right place? So we wandered around and looked at trees and looked at rose bushes and the river. And Caroline said, well, I think here and it was I oh I'm so glad because it was a willow tree and I've always that's be, always been my favorite tree and there were two willow trees and we decided that the smaller one that was more private was right for him and um and then I stood back and I let her do the the ceremony but it was whoa it was moving and um I've never actually done that with anyone before and uh so if anybody happens to be in England and wants to go to sit on a bench by the river and look at the small willow tree in Mortlake Cemetery, that's where Stephen is. And uh, that's where he wanted to be, more importantly. That's where he wanted to be. So that's, and it shows us all, you know, our mortality is, we're only here for a short time, but it's, uh, he'll he'll certainly live on in all our memories. There's no question about that. Some absolutely lovely tributes there from some of the people who were close to Stephen, and he certainly had a massive impact on uh, a variety of people over uh, such a long period of time. Uh, he would have uh, been a lovely man to know in the way some of these people knew him. Um, so, uh, Philip, we're going to uh, finish the episode with one final thing. Yeah, we thought it was just fair for uh, Stephen to have the last word. And uh, selling a vet during COVID was raising funds for charity. And Stephen agreed, she was, she was doing lots of poetry readings. And Stephen agreed to read a poem. And this is the poem he picked, one of his favorite poems. Uh, it deals with all kinds of interesting themes, but let's finish with Stephen doing a performance of his favorite poem. And thanks for joining us. Hello, I'm Stephen Greif. I'm in my little homemade studio and uh, this is a poem called The God Forsakes Antony which deals with Mark Antony uh, in Alexandria being left by the god Bacchus uh, and all his entourage leaving Antony alone in Alexandria the night before Alexandria is taken and it's a sort of lament by Antony it's written by Kavafi, a Greek poet and considered one of the best Greek poets actually of the 20th century. I've long loved this poem because it does kind of apply to all of us at uh, some stage in our life. Uh, maybe some not, but most of us it does. Anyway, see what you think of it. I haven't memorized it, so I'm reading it. Hope you enjoy it. When suddenly at midnight you hear an invisible procession going by with exquisite music and voices. Don't mourn your luck that's failing now. Work gone wrong, your plans all proving deceptive. Don't mourn them uselessly. As one long prepared and graced with courage, say goodbye to her, the Alexandria that is leaving. 
Above all, don't fool yourself. Don't say it was a dream. Your ears deceived you. Don't degrade yourself with empty hopes like these. As one long prepared and graced with courage, as is right for you who proved worthy of this city, go firmly to the window and listen with deep emotion, but not with the whining pleas of a coward. Listen, your final delectation to the voices, to the exquisite music of that strange procession, and say goodbye to her, the Alexandria you are losing. Thank you.